Yes, I know there's more. Of course there's more. There's going to be a lot more of these. We're only up to episode four of A History of Buffalo Theater. And I'm really excited about this particular episode because, oh man, talk about some fascinating guests. Talk about some important guests. The people I have in this podcast, which will include no less than David Lamb, Neil Raddus, Saul Elkin, Terry Doran, and maybe some other surprise guests. I don't know. And of course, Tony Chase will be here every now and then. He's got a comment on something. So it's really been a lot of fun. So sit back and relax and learn more about a history of Buffalo theater. This has been a blast to put it together. And every couple of weeks, there will be another episode. And I, I don't even know how long each episode is. I don't know how many episodes there will be after this because I just sort of make this up as I go along. I, I record the podcast, and when it seems like it's long enough, and okay, that's plenty, that's a good place to stop, that's where I stop. And that's how this is going to work. And already I'm hearing from people who are saying, there's just too much information. We can't absorb it all. It goes by too quickly. You're just reading off the 18-page script, and then you're inserting these people's voices. But I'll tell you something, at some point, the script will be available. And you'll be able to follow along and you'll be able to see everything that I see and somehow it will be in your hands. And I'll tell you something, we're getting close to stuff that is really mm, close to my heart. The modern era. As a matter of fact, that's pretty much what I've dubbed it on my document. If you can call nearly 50 years ago, modern. And this time our modern era starts in 1973. And we'll see how far we get because we've got a lot of audio clips to insert into this podcast, a lot of dates to tell you about, and a lot of theater information. So, without further ado, let's get started. Ah, up, there's the ticking clock. And now here's the music. which will carry us through the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to RLTP's Off-Road podcast series, A History of Buffalo Theater, Episode 4. So we're going to start off Episode 4 in 1973. David Lamb and co-founder Ronald Brando start a company called Stage Center in the Duville College Center cafeteria that would later be in residence at the Kavanoke Theater. So I went and I talked to David, and I wanted the whole story about how this all happened. Who is this Ronald Brando guy? And how did he ever get connected to Duville College? Much less, how did he even end up here in Buffalo, of all places? Turns out his lovely wife, Marcia, was also a lovely young girl in college, visiting over in Ireland when David went to Trinity. And he was playing rugby there, was quite a good rugby player, as a matter of fact. And he met her, and they hit it off, and he said, maybe I'll come over and visit you sometime. Sure enough, he did. And now, he's got to find work. So what was his first gig? Teaching at Amherst High School where Marcia was supposed to be interviewing for an English teacher's job. Here's David. 
I can get a job at Orchard Park. Why don't you take my interview with Don Munson? Don Munson is his name. At Amherst. Huh. I said, great. So I show, I show up with Marsha, with Don, and she said, I'm not taking the interview, but uh, David is, <laughs> th this guy is, is he? Don said, all right. All right. <laughs> so I sat down, and his first question, he said, do you play sports? I told him about the rugby. And I said, you know, I, I played for, for, for England under 19. He said, you had the job. I said, right, and, and can you teach uh, the football team kicking? You know, I said, absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in those days, you could get jobs. And, yeah, uh, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, so I go to Amherst, and I meet uh, Mort Clayman, who taught the musical. You know, he, he did the musical every year, directed it. And I said I was an actor, and I uh, probably wouldn't be around for too long. But he said, all oh, the Amherst players, you know. And I said, well, you've got to keep your wick wet, you know. I said, okay. So David connects with the Amherst players. He meets a lot of theater people in this community theater group, uh, one of whom was Gene Cairns, uh, Jeannie Cairns Hebern, who he then worked with later on at Studio Arena. Here's what David had to say about that. We were doing great, and I could have stayed being a high school teacher f for a long time. Uh, I was always looking for theater work, you know, and I'd gone down to studio, and I'd got two parts down there. Mm -hmm. I thought, this is great, you know, I can make my money here, and I can still act and so forth. Yes. Uh, and the only other person in Buffalo was being hired then was Jeannie Karen or Jeannie Hebben as she yes. was then yes. she was in the group that formed just before Studio Arena became Studio Arena Neil DeBrock got uh, a Ford Foundation grant I think for $50,000 and formed Studio Arena right. uh, so he moved from Lafayette and Hoyt yes. up to Main Street mm -hmm. uh, and so forth and Jeannie was part of the, that company so then I asked David, well, so where did this Ronald Brando guy come from? That's Brando, B-R-A-N-D-O-W. Where did he come from? And how did he get to be sort of a co-founder of a company that later went on to occupy what was now being called the refurbished auditorium at Deauville College? Turns out he met Ronald Brando on a ship coming from England with Marsha. And they did some theater on the ship. And then what? And I told Ron, Ron Brando, I said, if you're ever in Buffalo, look us up, you know, and, and so forth. Never expecting to see him again. Um, and I get this phone call from him. He said, have you ever heard of a place called Duval College? Not really, no, I, I don't know anything about it. He said, well, I just got a job there. And he'd been hired by a guy called Jerry Marconi, who was the department chair. So I go back to Amherst, and he's done a deal. He's you know come down and you know do a show. He said, "Look, I'm in charge. I can get, we, we get them. We get some money." I said, "Okay." So I go down to Deauville, and he is doing this production of Everyman. And we obviously we're not doing it on the Cavanaugh or, or the Duval Theatre. We're doing it at First Presbyterian on Symphony Circle there. So it's it's this sixties version with slides, dancing. We did it for 
all the Buffalo High School and stuff. You know, we had 1,500 people a day, you know, crammed in, in there, and we did it for two weeks, and it was packed. And then he did a production of uh, The Importance of Being Honest, and that's when Duval stage, the thrust was built and painted black and white squares on the auditorium stage. So that's how I got down there. And if you recall, if you listened to the previous podcast, the Duville Auditorium was simply called the Auditorium before it became the Cavanoke Theater. So that was his first stint at Duville as an actor. But then later on, he was hired there to teach. And he was teaching drama, and they had the idea to start a theater company and refurbish that old auditorium. The idea for the Cavanoke, well, the idea was, was mine, but for the building restoration was not my idea. Jerry Marconi, the chair of the department, he was a designer. He was not an actor or a literary guy or anything, but he was a, a heck of a designer. Yes. And he had all of these drawings of what he could do with the theatre if he got the money to restore it, because it was a mess. There were you know, loose chairs all over the place, there were no regular seats except up in the balcony. Mm. The whole thing needed redoing. But at the end of that year, they closed the theatre department down. I went to Canisius and I tried to start a theater there at the college. And they hired me, and Ed Zimmerman hired me right away. And there were like 24 English teachers then. We would all meet up on Friday evening up at the Waverley Hotel across the border, you know, and everybody gets housed. And that's where I'd met Greg Mayday, who was had just graduated. They bought my idea of theater, but at the end of that year, Canisius, we're not going to hire you. We have to get uh, a PhD in communications. So who did they hire from California? David Fendrick. So he got the job that I'd set up for him. And I don't know about you, but I had no idea that David actually worked at Canisius College for a short time and tried to start up a theater program there. And I'm sure there are many of you out there who don't know who David Fendrick was, but there was a time back in the 80s, and uh, maybe it was the late 70s and 80s, when David Fendrick was a very well-known actor in Buffalo, and he did shows like uh, Being Bean, which were which a, uh, like a one-man show about Brendan Bean. But let's get back to one final clip from David for now, where he talks about other work in Buffalo. And that summer, we decided we needed a theater. So we were going to do summer stock. And then with Greg, we went out to the Keenan Center. So we got the Keenan Center, about four shows. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I'd known uh, Roz Kramer. And we were good, good, good friends. And she just started toy. But they had no money. And they were out there. So I tell you what, whatever we make out of the Keenan Center, it goes to you. And I talked to Greg about it. He said, yeah, that, that's fine. We, we, you know, it's always got enough to live on. Uh, we fine. I said, I've got enough money. So anyway, we did this summer stock, and we gave the money, and that kept toy in, in business, basically. So another story about how toy was rescued. 
That's very interesting, I think. And we'll hear more from David Lamb a little later on because, of course, as the timeline moves on, he moves into the Cavanoke Theater, and we'll have more comments from him then. But in the meantime, Tony Chase has an interesting take on the David Lamb and Ronald Brando story. So here's Tony. So I'm in Amsterdam, and I'm looking for... I'm interviewing people having to do with theaters in Amsterdam for an article for Theater Week magazine. And there's an English-speaking theater there, and I meet this man named Raphael Barlow. And this guy's an American, and he's a little cagey. But eventually he says, you know David Lamb? Hell yeah, I know David Lamb. Not the question I expected to be asked here, but... And he tells me that he's co-founder of the Cavanoke Theater and that he's lived in Buffalo and that he knows Duval College and the minute detail of, of, it's like, good God. And apparently Raphael is a new affected first name. It wasn't his first name, but the Barlow is consistent. And he was there at the beginning, you know, side by side doing these things. And when he left town, David kept it going. And I thought, well, the people who get left behind in these histories... Except we didn't leave Raphael or Ronald Brando behind. We've included him here. Even though to Tony he was Raphael Barlow, he was Ronald Brando. And we will hear a lot more from Mr. David Lamb later on in future episodes of A History of Buffalo Theater. But for now, let's move on. Also happening in 1973, John Samazi and Tom Dudzik produced their first dinner theater production, the original play, Make Your Moves with Confidence, at the Showboat Restaurant on the Niagara River at the foot of Hurdle Avenue. Samazi later forms Melick and Mime Productions to continue and expand dinner theater until they're performing in five different restaurants simultaneously and also outside of Buffalo. I have a number of sound bites from John Samazi coming up soon when we talk about dinner theater. But for now, we say goodbye and move on. If you listened to the first two episodes of this podcast with myself, Ron Emke, and Steve Seashan, you know that we, uh, we gave some time to Miss Catherine Cornell, who was a huge, huge star throughout the theatrical world, and she was from Buffalo. And like many others, she had to go to England to become famous, but once she was famous, once she was a star... She came back to Buffalo often and brought many of her best, biggest star friends with her to perform at the Erlanger Theater and many other places. Here's Tony Chase to talk a little bit about Catherine Cornell. The Cornell Mansion on Delaware Avenue, where her, her grandfather, who owned the Buffalo Leadworks, which had been in proximity to there, but you know, quite a family fortune and the first theater that she would see in her life was in a, a fully equipped attic theater in that house. She goes to St. Mary's, St. Mary's, St. Margaret's, one of those M saints, but the one that is right there at North Street and Franklin. They live on Mariner in a house that's still standing. Her father had been a, a physician. Her mother, bad marriage. Mother had mental health issues, drinking issues. She gets involved with Jesse Bonstill, the theater company that has residencies in Detroit and in Buffalo and does roles for them. By that time, Miss Bonstell was jealous of young Miss Cornell, that uh, Miss Bonstell's opportunities had passed her by, and she knew it. And apparently in rehearsals, she was ruthlessly, vilely horrible to Catherine Cornell. Another member of the cast finally told Jessie Bonstell off and told her, you're undermining her confidence. You are 
reprehensible as a director. You're trying to destroy this show simply because you are jealous of this young woman who is more charismatic, talented, and will be more successful than you ever were. And you're a bitter old woman. You should get over it. This happened in England, but not being an idiot, she recognized the truth of this and recalibrated. And it was in England that Catherine Cornell would make her mark as Joe March in Little Women. Then coming back to New York, you know, a succession of huge hits, all of which were made by other actors in the movies. She does The Green Hat. Greta Garbo does the movie. She does The Letter. Betty Davis does the movie. Well, the legend is that she was so committed to the theater. She was very afraid. She wrote to George Cukor. She was a close friend of the film director, George Cukor, who had directed Catherine Hepburn in the Joe March role in Little Women. And this was um, until the 1950s. And she writes to him and she says that I've never done film and I'm worried about making a transition to film. But George, I would have confidence if you would direct me. And he made actors look very, very good. He'd done it with Garbo, he'd done it with Hepburn, he did it with Vivian Lee. But the film never happened. She was offered Nunn's story, but it, it just never, never came to be. For There is a television version of The Barretts of Wimpole Street, which you can see. She did do a recording with Christopher Plummer of the Elizabeth Barrett, the, the, the Browning poetry, the, the, the you know, there's one scene from Stage Door Canteen where she, across a cafeteria counter, does the balcony scene with a young soldier who'd played Romeo in school. That is what we have of, of Catherine Cornell. But she had been the definitive interpreter of George Bernard Shaw. And, and in fact, she had exclusive rights to certain plays. I believe Candida was hers. And the portrait in the Albright Knox Gallery of Catherine Cornell is incidentally in her costume as Candida. And I have a, a letter from Catherine Cornell to a female journalist in Buffalo, thanking her for her continued support. It is this network of unmarried women who helped each other, in, including Marianne DeForest, hugely influential on, in the Buffalo Players, which was to become Studio Arena Theater. She wrote the version of Little Women that, that made Catherine Cornell a star. And sadly, that's the last we'll hear about Catherine Cornell until we talk about the auditorium being named in her honor on the UB North campus. 1974, on July 25th, Art Park opens. Now, you may be wondering what Art Park has to do with anything, but I think it was a significant player in bringing major musicals to town. I mean, many people these days think of Art Park as a concert venue, and of course it is. But for the longest time, they produced major musicals in that huge house of theirs, and it was a significant player on the Buffalo theater scene. So I think Art Park plays an important role in a history of Buffalo theater. Here's Tony Chase to talk a little bit about it. Art Park, a kind of a world aside, there was a period of time when there was, again, government money, which is gone, when you would have opera, where you would have Mary Gordon Murray and Can Can, where you would have um, Joanna Galushak and Cabaret, that you'd have these glittering shows that they just don't do anymore remembering this is a New York State Park. And if you've ever done a panel for Niska, that is the mentality. It is New York City and everywhere else. And interestingly, too, this is uh, Republicans doing this, Rockefeller. But as with State University, these things assume state support in their design, which is gone. So they're having to rapidly transform themselves into something else that they were not initially intended to be. I look at what's happening in government now, and there seems to be a bit more trust in government and a, and a bit more sense that we can, if we pool our resources, 
we can make a great society. But the mentality has really been what benefits the very, very rich will trickle down, maybe shifting. But of course, they, these things shift back. But I always recall Nelson Rockefeller's name was on everything having to do with public access to the arts. As we continue along in our timeline, we reach 1974, in which Lorna Hill, the venerable founder of Ujima, apparently founded a feminist theater company. Now, I could find no information about this, but according to an interview with Ron Emke, he said it's true. 1974 also brought Robert Longo and Charles Clough, founders of Hallwells, they did it in a former ice house, and it became a center for not only art and film in every form, but also experimental theater and performance art. It leads the way in opening the doors for LGBT performers and performances. Chief among these may have been Robbie McCauley's The Buffalo Project theater piece, which was in 1990, featuring Lorna Hill and Manny Freed, and regarded the Buffalo East Side Riots of 1967. 1974, Melody Fair burns and is replaced with a permanent domed structure. Melody Fair was a great big circus tent, a round circus tent out in Tanaw North Tonawanda and right next to the Wurlitzer Organ Manufacturing Company. Melody Fair brought in acts, everything from singers and music acts and comedians to full-fledged Broadway-style productions. In 1974, it burns, but it's replaced with a permanent structure and has a sort of a, a new life as a presenting house for theater, comedians, music acts of all kinds. Don Rickles was there. I saw Harry Chapin there. A wide variety of entertainment. Now, continuing along in our timeline, also in 1974, an extremely important event occurred. The city of Buffalo acquired Shays Buffalo after a foreclosure for back taxes. And we're going to be talking a lot about this a little later on, but Shays Buffalo, at that point, was headed for the wrecking ball, if not saved by extremely concerned citizens. 1975, the Committee for Youth and the Arts, an educational and charitable organization and public foundation formed by the Catholic Church in conjunction with members of local community theater groups and corporations is established. Jane Freeman, a well-known local actress, director, and television personality, I remember she hosted a show called Art Scene, I actually appeared on it at one point, which was on the local PBS affiliate. Uh, she joined the committee's board of directors in 1981. The Committee for Youth and the Arts becomes very important later on in our timeline because this forms the foundation, the roots, of a very important and influential theater in Buffalo, Musical Fair. 1976. George Burns and Cab Calloway rededicate Shays Buffalo on its 50th anniversary before an audience of 3,000. Cab Calloway had performed at the theater at its original opening week in 1926, and George Burns had performed there in the late 40s. Huge, the rededication of Shays Buffalo in 1976. 
Also in 1976, speaking of Catherine Cornell, UB opens the Catherine Cornell Theater in the Ellicott Complex. Saul Elkin is going to tell us more about this shortly. Because what else happened in 1976? Saul Elkin launches Shakespeare in Delaware Park with a production of The Winter's Tale. I had a lovely time talking to Saul Elkin. He told me all about his influences. And let's start right at the very beginning with where did the inspiration for Shakespeare in Delaware Park come from? Here's Saul. I had done a PhD at uh, Carnegie Mellon and Joe Papp was my mentor. He was there for one semester as a visiting instructor and I happened to be there at the time and they hooked me up with him. What happened was that over a period of time, I wrote a dissertation, I sent him chapters and eventually I wrote a dissertation and got the degree. And during the course of that time, he called me one day and said he had a play that he'd like to see and could I produce it in Buffalo. It was called Apple Pie. It was written by a feminist playwright, Myrna Lamb. It was based loosely on the only Jewish Miss America, although her name doesn't appear. So I cast the play and I did it. I produced it. Joe came to Buffalo and saw it and he liked it. He and I were having a beer at the Anchor Bar, as it happens. And he said to me, who's doing Shakespeare in Buffalo? And I said, well, you know, the colleges are doing it. It's done occasionally, nobody professionally. He said, well, start something. I love that. Two guys just sitting in a bar, shooting the breeze. One is Saul Elkin, the other is Joe Papp. And Joe Papp says to him, eh, how much Shakespeare's happening around here? Well, eh, not much. Well, start something. And he did. How did it happen? Here's more from Saul. Ubi was the producer. I was chairman of the theater department, and I began it as part of the UB theater department summer session. And normally, I, courses would have been offered, but I, I decided that I would try to do a play. And in those years, chairmen were given the sum of money to hire summer instructors. And I asked the then dean whether or not I could use the money to hire some actors. And we would do a production in, in which experienced actors would play the principal roles and students would play the other roles. And all of them would register for a course, Shakespeare in the Park 101. It started out as a course in the, in the summer session. And I really never anticipated that it would go beyond that first year. I think that is, I think that's just amazing. They're doing it as a course just for the hell of it. Never thought it would go beyond the first year. And here we are, still enjoying a summer of Shakespeare in Delaware Park. But this was a huge, huge undertaking. And I asked Saul, who helped out? There must have been people who were really supportive for this to get off the ground. Here's what he said. I said, well, what do I do? He said, well, call the mayor. I called and I was put right through to, right through his office, Stan Bukowski. He was a very honest, down-to-earth guy. I came to his office. He was there. His parks commissioner was there. Somebody else was there. And he said, uh, we like the idea. We can't give you any money. I said, well, that's okay, because the UB is going to produce it. All I need is some help from the city. He said, well, how about uh, electricity? I said, bingo. And for uh, all these years, whatever it is, 49 years, the city of Buffalo has provided the electricity for Shakespeare in the Park. And they trucked the set in, they stored the set in a city garage. I, I think it started with my taking a stroll in the park and I came upon that hill and I thought this would be ideal. 
And as a matter of fact, I remember saying to Mikowski at that meeting that I noticed there was a tree at the top of the hill with a wire tied off on it. He nodded at the parks commissioner and he said, and the guy said, well, yes, we occasionally hook into that when we're doing something in the park. And I said, well, may I hook into that? And they said, of course, well, eventually that got more elaborate and the, uh, you know, the electric company installed underground lines and so on. There were no obstacles. Nobody objected. There was a sort of Delaware Park committee of interested citizens that met on a monthly basis. And they were concerned about the numbers of people who might show up, but they liked the idea. There were residents on Lincoln Parkway who were opposed to the hundreds of cars being parked along Lincoln Parkway. But uh, they lived with that as well. That's the way we began. And just like that, a 50-year tradition starts. Nobody objected, he said. Everybody was trying to be helpful. There were some concerned neighbors. There still are. But it just amazes me that this kind of stuff happened, that we were so fertile, a creative community, that someone could say, we want to do Shakespeare in Delaware Park. And everybody said, yeah, okay. (laughs) So I asked Saul, what do you remember? What are your most memorable shows? What do you remember about that first show? Here's what he said. Gary Cicerella, who had never done an outdoor stage, built a stage on the campus at UB then took it apart and reassembled in Delaware Park piece by piece. As a matter of fact, I remember saying to Gary, I need more than one level. I mean, I can't do this whole thing on one level. So he put a staircase right in the middle of the stage. What is it? He he said, I don't know. I said, well, it's a staircase leading to nowhere. (laughs) But it was a way of arranging actors on stage that that gave me a level I hadn't otherwise had. Jim McGuire and Jerry Finnegan became the stars of the first Winter's Tale. And pretty much the rest were students, and I directed it. And uh, people loved it. And we ran it for four weekends, and the crowds got bigger and bigger, which is really what impelled me to say, well, we'll try it another summer. I had no ink, no notion that I would do it for more than one summer. And he's still doing it. Let's talk a little bit about what happened when UB, which was a sponsor, which had promoted this, which had paid for it and produced these shows, UB suddenly decided, yeah, we don't want to do this anymore. And it looked like it was all going to be over until a benefactor stepped in. I received a very curt note from a then dean saying that the uh, university could no longer financially support it. Wrap it up. We were maybe 15 years in, I'm not sure. So I remember I had a press conference at the then Pfeiffer Theater, and the New York Times came, and the Toronto Star came, and everybody came. And the next morning, I received a telephone call from the CEO of Marine Midland Bank, who had heard the press conference on his car radio. And he said to me, how much do you need? And I, you know, I should have said, can I get back to you? But immediately, I gave him a, a figure, which was the budget from the previous year. And he said, well, somebody from my office will get back to you within the next couple of days. And somebody did, not him, but one of his one of his assistants, who said that you have that amount of money and you have it for three years. I immediately became incorporated. Yeah. And the university helped me do that. Back then, I was a one-man show. I mean, and it got bigger and bigger. So back then... Marine Midland is like our M&T now. Everywhere you look, M&T is sponsoring something, whether it's, whether it's a sports team or whether it's a theater or, or a concert. You see their name everywhere. And here, Saul was just about to close up Shakespeare in Delaware Park. The university said, wrap it up. 
And then Marine Midland steps in and says, here, we'll sponsor you for three years, whatever you need. What a great story. So I also asked Saul if he had any other favorite memories about Shakespeare in Delaware Park, how it went from year to year and got bigger and bigger and more crazy and (laughs) more music was involved and then there was lights and there was sound. And this is what Saul had to say about his favorite memories. I think in the early years, I had a long association with Ray Leslie, who was a, a composer. And he and I together developed versions of the some of the Shakespeare plays that I loved, one of which that is my fondest memory was a version of Shakespeare's Pericles, which I called Americles. And I wrote a script. Ray wrote a score. Mike Nichols came to Buffalo, and he and I sat on the hill together and watched this production of Americles. And Mike developed a relationship with Ray Leslie that went on for a while. And eventually, Mike did a cabaret that the Schubert's produced in New York using the material that Ray and I had evolved for this production. Americles was the most memorable of the versions that I did. But I think really my happiest memories were of those adaptations, Much Ado and uh, Taming of the Shrew that you were involved with. And (laughs) I'll never forget one day when you said at a rehearsal that you played the accordion. (laughs) And I said, well, bring it. (laughs) Those are my great memories. And that's also a great memory for me, although I did learn a lesson that day. If Saul asks you, can you play any kind of weird instrument, don't suggest that you might be able to, because he'll use it. And I'm coming down the hill singing That's Amore, but that's also another story. And how about that reference to Mike Nichols? Eh, We're sitting on the side of the hill watching Americles. Jeez! We have one more clip from Saul that I would like to share with you because I spoke briefly about how the Catherine Cornell Theater opened this same year in 1976. And the Catherine Cornell Theater, if you've never been there, is a very interesting space on the UB North campus. And I asked Saul how it came about and what it was intended for originally. It was a dorm. There happened to be a theater. The plan originally was that the UB Theater Department would be located where the Catherine Cornell Theater is now located. The university was unwilling to provide the support spaces and services in that building that we needed. The theater was fine. We could have lived with the theater, but we needed a shop and we needed a costume shop and we needed classrooms. And, you know, and, and then the, uh, the theater department moved there. Our offices were in the same building as the, as the gym. And originally it was used for student productions, and then it was uh, concerts and dance concerts, all kinds of things. But uh, we were still there, and we used to perform in the new building, the new art center. Once the new building was built, all of our work focused on that building. Classes were in there. There were two large theaters in there. There was a black box theater and and a huge proscenium theater. And from that point forward, we began to work in that building. Saul Elkin, a dear friend, a great man, and there's not a moment when I talk to him when I don't think to myself, man, we are so lucky to have had him in Buffalo. Talk about influential people. There's one right there. And we will talk to Saul more in the future because his influence does not stop, and he is still influencing us. In 1977, 
This, I think, was a very significant event in the coverage of Buffalo Theater in the media world. On June 3rd in 1977, the first edition of the magazine format Gusto appears in the Buffalo Evening News. After numerous requests from John Dwyer and Terry Doran, the editorial staff finally relents to their suggestion that Buffalo's entertainment offerings were so numerous and varied that only this format, including a, a weekly calendar of events, could do it justice. It becomes a major supporter of the Buffalo theater community when upcoming shows and events receive prominent location on the cover and the interior front pages. And I interviewed Terry Doran on Zoom, and he told me that at one point, the Buffalo Evening News Gusto magazine was 48 pages long. In recent weeks, what's the Gusto been? 16 pages. Now, I know we're still recovering from a pandemic, but still. Here's Terry to talk about how it all began for him at the then Buffalo Evening News. First of all, I started in 1960, and there wasn't an arts and entertainment section when I joined the paper. I worked nights, and the only people on the night staff were a Night City editor and Artist Smith, who was the theater critic, and John Dwyer, the music, classical music critic. And I became a, sort of a project of Dwyer's, I think. He mentored me a bit. He was quite a wonderful man. And, and how I got into it was four or five years later before I really took an interest in it, and I started reviewing some movies. That's, that was sort of my entry. Artist Smith, who, as I said, was a theater reviewer, he was pretty close to retirement. So when he did, I kind of slipped into the job, I guess. So that's how Terry Doran slipped into the job of a, a theater editor and theater critic. Interesting. Now, I am of the opinion that the coverage that the Buffalo Evening News provided for a theater in Buffalo really helped to encourage theater goers to get out and and with that calendar that suddenly became available to them they could see what was happening and it was always in the front pages you'd open up the gusto and right there was a was a story about some theater what they were doing in town and then right there in the front pages there was also maybe a feature about an actor or a director or a particular play that was going on right in the front pages of the gusto how things have changed so I think that the Gusto was very helpful in creating our reputation as a theater town. I also think that there was something else going on. So I asked Terry if he could explain the explosion in creativity and theater in Buffalo. And this is what he had to say about that. I think there were several things going on or influences. One is that the NEA, a National Endowment for the Arts, was distributing some seed money for regional theaters as equity houses. That was true, I believe, of Buffalo. And the other thing, of course, that was happening was the general turmoil in the 60s itself, where people were feeling, you know, their opportunities are opening up. You know, younger people were, I think, saying something like, we can do this, we don't need the old establishment types that tell us what we can do and not do. So there was a studio arena, 
Of course, the Kabanoki. I think when Saul Elkin took over the UB Theater Department, that became a force. Buff State, and I don't remember who ran their department, they turned out some interesting people in terms of theater, I believe. And I think that sense of youthful creativity had some effect. I'm talking about sort of amorphous things here, just a general effect. And somebody sitting somewhere might have said, gee, I could do that. You know, why, why can't we do that? Yes, and apparently that can-do attitude, we can do that. We can do that better than anybody else can do that. We don't need the big guys. That attitude has continued right up to the present. So if you remember back in the previous episode, or maybe it was the previous episode before that, in 1964, Lucas Foss, who was the musical director of the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra, he formed a Creative Associates, it was called, at the University at Buffalo's Center for the Creative and Performing Arts. And this sort of became the hub for creativity, and it provided fertile ground for creative people. And this also might have contributed to Buffalo's creative explosion in those days. Here's more from Mr. Doran. And the people themselves, there then, besides the institutions... There were people that showed up that were important. Saul, Elkin, David Lamb, Lorna Hill, Edwardshima Theater. I'm bound to overlook someone here, so forgive me. But those people started showing up. And there were also actors around, early actors such as Joe Krizyak and Stu Roth. It was an informal community of people. And Buffalo was a fairly creative place to be in the late 60s and the 70s, I think. A fairly creative place to be, Buffalo. City of no illusions. Well, well. so then how did the gusto really come about? What really brought this to fruition? How did it happen? We did two things. One is, again, John Dwyer played a role in this. We kept pushing the editors at the news to set off some pages on the weekend for arts and entertainment. Eventually, they did. And uh, yes, it was our idea. Once they uh, took the plunge, the advertising dollar effect was huge. Our editions were usually like, as I recall, something like 48 pages. I think Gusto played a big part in the news is overcoming the courier, too. I don't think Gusto created more coverage. By that time, we had a pop music critic, for example. We were covering most things. I think the, the material was there. The coverage was there. It was a different way to package and focus for readers. And also it gave us control over it. Before, everything was controlled out of the city desk in some way. I think it helped. I think, well, I think there were other factors. One is the calendar, for example, which was really the backbone of Gusto was all put in one place. The theater and almost everything else was in there. So that anybody was interested in the arts and performances, they could go to Gusto and find what they needed. 
But why Buffalo? That's what I really wanted to know. Why this town has more theater than it really should have, considering the population? How did Buffalo get to be a theater town with all of these patrons and all of these people who love to attend? Here's what Terry had to say about that. I think I was aware the theater scene felt really good. A lot of, uh, a lot of it did. Anyway. But one factor, I guess, I was just thinking to remember is Buffalo had a very strong cultural tradition with old family money going way back. I, I don't know enough about how the money factored into all this. I just don't. But my sense of it is that Buffalonians kind of inherited the idea that either they were owed or deserved some good culture. A town where people feel they deserve some good culture. I love it. But Terry wasn't finished. He had one final fun anecdote to leave us with. I have a little tiny anecdote. When I retired, there was a little party at the Irish Classical Theater. and They gave me a giant photograph of Chris O'Neill in Waiting for Godot, okay? And a bunch of people signed it. And way down in one corner, you remember Neil Garvey? Neil was a friend, and he he wrote, Terry, here's your hat, Neil Garvey. <laughs> I think that sums it up. Thank you, Terry. Very nice of you to mention Neil Garvey. I had him nowhere in this timeline, but those of us who knew him will never forget him. And I'm glad you had a little story about Neil for our closing of the Terry Doran section. We now continue with something that is significant to those who are Studio Arena fans. In 1978, Studio Arena made the move into 710 Main Street, which was the former Palace Burlesque House that had closed. And if you recall, this was only about 10 years after the original Palace Burlesque closed, and then they built this whole new theater, which lasted less than 10 years, and was sold by Dewey Michaels in September of 1977. Well, in 1978, they converted it into a 637-seat thrust stage theater. The opening production was George and Ira Gershwin's Funny Face. And perhaps you remember what Ann Moot said about that and how it affected uh, Neil Dubrock's career at Studio Arena because it was a pretty big failure for a grand opening show at the new place in 710. So let's talk to Ann Moot again about the other artistic directors that followed Neil Dubrock. And so then they got David Frank. The how they got David Frank, I have no idea. I mean, they went through a process, I'm sure. Maybe even Neil helped them find him. I don't know. And he was there for maybe a dozen years or so. And then he left. Everybody was tired of him because everything he did was too intellectual for most people. I thought his stuff was very well done. But And then Gavin was there, and I don't know how many years he was there, probably 12 or 13 years, you know, a good number. Gavin was extravagant. He was sort of in the Neil DeBrock mode, but in a different sort of way. He wasn't spectacular the way Neil was. He didn't have the chutzpah or whatever the word is. He, he was British, and so he was a little stuffy. I can remember sitting down and talking to him one time at lunch, and when I got up from the table and left, I mean, I felt so deflated. 
That was his big problem. He thought that he knew so much more about everything than anybody knew. I'm amazed that he got the job done as well as he did. And then Gavin came and Webb left. Actually, we only had, well, we had a fourth director, but she was there a short time. And then the theater was going down the, the tube at the time she got there. Kathleen Gaffney was a very talented woman. She put on a couple of good shows, but by the time she got here, she really couldn't do anything. It was too late. So that's how all of the artistic directors seem to fare in Anne Moot's mind. And now, let's hear from Anne about the actual move into the 710 building. Bob Suedos, he was the one who got the federal grant for us to move over to the Palace Theater. He got a federal grant from one of the arts commissions or whatever, you know, and that was largely because of that, that we were able to, to make that move. And it was a good move because that space was, was really a better space. I would assume that, the, that they knew that the Palace Theater was available when they applied for the grant, but I'm, I'm assuming that part of the reason might have been that the Palace Theater was available to purchase or to make a deal with or how, whatever the deal was, I, that I never really knew. And before we leave the studio arena behind for a little while, here are some comments from Tony Chase about how the quality of theater at Buffalo's only Lort Regional Theater, the only equity house in Buffalo, seemed to be on a steep decline. Studio Arena Theater lied to itself for a long period of time, telling itself that it had a national profile when it did not. It, it, had, it had formerly had a national profile. Coming on strong, the first production, Colleen Dewhurst, directed by Jose Quintero, Eugene O'Neill, Miss, I mean, that bang statement. And there's also a point at which Studio Arena Theater drifts into a different category. Once they are only begrudgingly and occasionally hiring anyone from Buffalo, they really are destined to be alienated from the community. And the audience to which they catered began to cease to exist. The A.R. Gurney set, you know, the people who are chronicled in the, in the plays of Pete Gurney, that way of living, that gracious way of living, that whole way of life is, is gone. It did not adapt. And when it was going down, I contacted TCG, you know, Theater Communications Group, which does a lot of data. And, you know, there were other regional, resident regional theaters closing. Um, Charlotte closed at that time. And I asked to speak to the guy who runs the data. And I said, you know, I'm in this little bubble. And I'm trying to analyze what's going down here. And I would really like some, an objective outsider whose daily obsession is the resident regional theater. And he said, well, you know, it's, uh, we don't really think about studio arena theater in Buffalo very much. It's not Hartford Stage. It's not Goodman. You know, it's not, one of, it's not Mark Taper Forum. It's not one of those. You know, in other words, it's not a flagship theater in the American theater. He said he looks down and he goes, oh, first thing that popped out to him his college professor wife directs a lot. That doesn't bode well for the artistic quality. And we will certainly get back to more about Studio Arena and its eventual downfall in the later episodes of A History of Theater in Buffalo. But for now, one of the greatest regrets I have was not getting this woman's voice recorded for all posterity. I loved her. Everyone loved her. Miss Lorna Hill the founder of Ujima Theater. This all happens in 1978, when Lorna founded the theater. I finally was able to make connections with Sarah Norat Phillips, who was there at the time with Lorna, and she was able to give me all sorts of insights into how it happened, why it happened, and just all sorts of other interesting tidbits. 
Here is Sarah Norat Phillips to talk about the beginnings of Ujima. Well, Lorna and I met actually through a production at the African Cultural Center. I was a student. She was teaching at the University of Buffalo, and we became fast friends. She was directing Stye of, of The Blind Pig, and I was the stage manager on that production. And we got close very quickly. We kind of kindred souls. And she had spoken with me at that time about her desire to develop a theater company, a professional African-American theater company. She wondered if, one, I was interested in working on that project with her. And, of course, I said, yes, I was graduating myself from Buffalo State's theater program. So she held a, a meeting at the Center for Positive Thought, which isn't there anymore, but was at the corner of Maine and uh, Utica Streets. It was a, a center that focused primarily on dance, but they also offered classes in music. Uh, and Lorna ran some acting classes out of there. And so she invited like-minded people. There were 27 of us that came to that initial meeting and we discussed this concept of a theater company and what that was going to take. And we incorporated as Ujima Theater Company and we incorporated as a, a collective. Ujima itself is a Swahili word that literally means collective work and responsibility. And it was on that tenant that we founded the company. So then I asked the first of many stupid questions I've asked people throughout the years. And this one was, why Ujima? Why did you want to do it? The reason behind even developing Ujima was kind of based on a, a 60s revolutionary philosophy. You have to seize the means of production, Right. We lived in a town and uh, in a city where finding professional work for Black theater artists was virtually non-existent. And if we were going to wait for people to hire us and give us work, then we wouldn't work, right? So we decided to you know, seize the means of, of production so that we could become self-determining because self-determination was another really important part of that whole philosophy. But with any new venture, there are serious challenges. So I asked Sarah if she could possibly narrow it down to the most significant challenge they had to face. The struggle was always the money. It's always been the money, not, not the work, not the creativity, not the talent, but the lack of funding, the lack of resources. For many, 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 many years, Ujima operated without paying a single salary dollar to anyone on staff or the actors on the stage or the directors. We worked as a collective, as a family. We worked because we had to work, but we did not have the money to maintain a theater and pay the personnel. We lived off of our uh, earned revenue. Fortunately, we were, we were always very fortunate that people liked our work, so they would pay to come see us. Um, and that kept us with the lights on and the heat on and, and the ability to, to renovate the space twice. But that's how we used that money as opposed to paying the artists that did the work. For much of our, our early uh, years and, and through probably our first five to ten years even at Theater Loft, people came and did the work because they wanted to come and do the work with us, not because they were getting paid. So in the founding of Ujima, was the purpose to focus singularly on African-American plays, playwrights, performers. 
Here's what Sarah had to say about that. The primary purpose was to to produce work from the African-American canon, but we have always been a multicultural, multi-ethnic company. When you are an African-American-led organization, and Lorna was, of course, a strong activist and advocate on behalf of African-American people and all people who are disenfranchised and making sure that there was a voice for that community in the theater community, then people translate that to, oh, they're just a black theater company. And, and that was never the case. It's not how we were founded, uh, nor is it how we, how we work uh, currently. If you looked at our, our history of work, we have done everything from Man in the Moon Marigolds to, to Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death. We have, from the very, very beginning, been a multi-ethnic, multicultural theater collective. So I asked Sarah a little bit more about what was the goal? What were they trying to accomplish with their theater collective? She started with training and classes because we had a wide variety of experience of people who were interested, some who had been doing it for a lot of years, some who were green, some who were students, some who were graduates of theater programs, some one had a master's in theater. So it was it was widely varied. And one of the things that were was unique to Ujima at the time is that you had to be able to sing and act and dance. Um, we never we never did <laughs> straight theater. It was very rare. And so for Lorna, it was important that we get all of that training. It was a matter of getting you to be the best performing artist that you could be. Because if you learn how to sing, then you know how to control your breath. If you learn how to dance, then you know how to move across the stage. For us, it was a matter of developing the whole artist. So that is how we trained. Um, and we became a very versatile theater company because of it. So we started there and probably six months into that process, because of the level of commitment that was required, we met three times a week plus uh, Saturday business meetings. There were nine of us left out of the original 27. <laughs> Those are some pretty stringent standards. Nine left out of the original 27. So they lost two-thirds of the group, but those who stuck around really were passionate. What made Ujima so special? It speaks to why Ujima is different and why Ujima survived for 43 years. Because for, for many of us, particularly the founding members, that core of nine that expanded to, to maybe 12 over a two-year period, that stayed uh, connected and did all of our work together. I think many of us were transplants. You know, we didn't come from Buffalo. We didn't live in Buffalo. Um, we came here to go to school. We, you know, and so we became family by choice. And even those company members who were Buffalonians, who had been born and raised here, were looking for this kind of an experience. And so, yeah, when you speak of the kinds of things that you experienced, I like to think that that's what Lorna's gift was to us, to create this world, to create this space uh, where we could do our work. Once again, invoking Lorna's name, and I asked Sarah, looking back, what are the things you're most proud of in the development of the Ujima Theater Collective? I think, Peter, the thing that, that I'm proudest of now that I can look back is that it survived, that what we built was built on such solid purpose that 
despite potential closing, losing our home, not having funding, it survived and is continuing to survive and creating a place, albeit different without the, the force of Lorna Hill behind it. Uh, the, the foundation is solid enough that it can survive even that, that we, we built something that truly had a meaning and impacted people's lives in a way that they remain committed to it and remain committed to supporting it because it's important. We do the work for the benefit of the beloved community is a phrase Lorna talked about all of the time. And the fact that we are still doing that work and we can still do that work and we have done that work, that's the thing that I, I'm, I'm extremely proud of, that it wasn't just art for art's sake, as I like to say, that it, it changed people's lives and hopefully will continue to do so. And now to wrap up the story of the Ujima Theater, here's Tony Chase with some final thoughts on Lorna Hill. People used to say to her, were you the first African-American woman admitted to Dartmouth? And she said, well, I was the first woman. So I guess by default, I am also the first African-American woman. I realize that usually an or- a white woman gets to be first, and then, no, that, that didn't happen in this case. Known her a long time and did the final interview with Lorna, who founded, whittled down a group of aspirants. They knew they wanted to do Ujima Company, shared responsibility and work. And they, they got it down to eight in the original group. And there was a period of time when Studio Arena Theater claiming to have had a, uh, a national profile, which they had long since lost. They had had one under Neil Dubrock. But long since they had stopped doing that, Lorna had produced from the Mississippi Delta, which had gone on to Woody King, the new federal theater, Henry Street Settlement, um, had done a national tour, had been brought back again, had gone off Broadway to Circle in the Square. That was Ujima. And Lorna, interestingly, you know, she, another one with an iron fist, and though it was a collective, what Lorna said really, really went, that they, she had the total respect of a real founder. And she had an activist vision, which sometimes meant she was unreasonable, because she saw the end, and she saw where we need to be. And then just, you know, no obstacle. You know, she was the one getting dressing up in a mammy costume and going down in front of City Hall of this is what I need to do to get the money, I'm doing it, and the television cameras, and they'd give her the money just to get her to go away. And But interestingly, they did evolve. They got themselves into the space over on the West Side. Brand new theater, and even recognition of her own mortality, regrouped for the continuation of the organization beyond her own life, and the original people came back great. And Ujima has turned the page and will continue past its founder. So as the UB Theater Department once told Saul, uh, wrap it up. So I think we're going to wrap it up for this episode of RLTP's Off-Road, A History of Buffalo Theater. So I hope you'll come back in a couple of weeks when we continue with 1978. I I don't want to give anything away, but 1978, a lot of stuff happened, including John Samazi and BET and more about Saul. And then Neil Raddus comes back in. Oh, man, we've got David Lamb again. Holy cow, you don't want to miss that. And if you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? You want to hear the end of this? You want to hear how it all goes down in a history of Buffalo theater here on RLTP's Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano. <laughs>